Welcome to the 358th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss medical scarcity and racial inequality in the American health system with George Omwat. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 14, 2021, there are 4,874,886 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Carmen Vasquez, a force on LGBTQ issues, dies at 72. It was written by Neil Genslinger and published February 5th, 2021 in the New York Times. It was 1996, and President Bill Clinton was running for a second term against Bob Dole, the Republican candidate. In the gay, lesbian, bi, trans world, there was talk of boycotting the election to show displeasure with the center-right politics of compromise that characterized Mr. Clinton's first term. But Carmen Vasquez was having none of it. To those who say Bill Clinton is Bob Dole, she wrote in an essay in Gay Community News that September, I say good luck trying to stave off radical right policies under a Republican administration over the next four years. The essay, Classic Vasquez, was forceful in its argument for staying engaged and doing a better job of articulating an agenda and pushing it forward. As a rights movement, she wrote, we have always mistaken access for accountability, happy for a place at the table, even if the table we get to has just had the dessert dishes cleared out. Vasquez, a longtime force in the world of LGBTQ rights and issues, first in San Francisco and then in New York, died on January 27th. 2021 in Brooklyn. She was 72. The cause was complications of COVID-19, said her longtime friends Carly Steen and Erica Pelletro. The National LGBTQ Task Force was one of several organizations to post news of her death. Its executive director, Ray Carey, called Ms. Vasquez, quote, one of our movement's most brilliant activists, unquote. Ms. Vasquez was a board member of that organization in the 1990s when it was the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, and she was involved with countless other organizations focused on LGBTQ issues, particularly health. Her self-description, a Puerto Rican, a butch lesbian, and a socialist, unquote. Carmen Vasquez was born on January 13, 1949, in Puerto Rico to Jorge and Carmen Maria Vasquez. When she was young, the family moved to Harlem. In a 2005 interview for the Voices of Feminism Oral History Project at Smith College, Ms. Vasquez said that among her earliest memories of New York were her first encounter with ice cream and a fascination with baseball. The Yankees became her passion. But her childhood was also filled with challenges. 
including some that resulted from exploring her sexual orientation. Her friends said she had been thrown out of one high school for kissing a girl. She graduated from Cathedral High School in Manhattan and went on to earn a bachelor's degree in American literature and a master's degree in education at the City University of New York. Ms. Vasquez moved to San Francisco in 1975 and became director of the Women's Building, a community hub focused on women's issues. She later helped found the Lavender Youth Recreation and Information Center and the LGBT Health and Human Services Network. As coordinator of the city's Office of Lesbian and Gay Health Services in 1993, a time when AIDS among gay men was dominating health discussions, she initiated a survey on lesbian health needs and sexual practices. In the oral history, Ms. Vasquez reflected on the rise of lesbian influence, especially by lesbians of color, among San Francisco's gay activists during her two decades in the city, a change she helped bring about. We went from underground to most definitely front and center in the political spectrum of San Francisco, she said. Resettling in New York, she became the first director of public policy for the Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center. In 2003, she became deputy director of the lobbying group Empire State Pride Agenda. In 2020, she received a SAGE Award for her leadership on aging issues related to the LGBTQ population. Change is never about one person alone, as Vasquez said in accepting the award. There are countless others who paved the way for my activism and countless others who will follow me and build a bridge to the future. She is survived by her siblings, Ida Malloy and Nancy Magdalia, Jorge and Jose Vasquez, and by Ms. Steen and Ms. Pelletro, who with their two children were like family to her. In talks throughout her career, Ms. Vasquez emphasized coalition building, telling audiences that justice for the LGBTQ world was linked to reproductive rights, fair housing, racial equality, and other causes, and she had a vision of who was best positioned to advance the LGBTQ cause in the future. It will succeed because of the involvement and leadership of people of color, not because we're smarter or cuter, although sometimes that's true, she said, but because of the lived experience, she told the oral history, and because of the bridge building and alliance building that this movement requires if it is to move past the stage of just me and truly be about justice and about the shared struggles of different oppressed people. Okay, I'm going to turn to the conversation today, and I'm really pleased to introduce my guest, George Omwat. Dr. George Omwat is an assistant professor of global health. He earned his PhD from Columbia University in 2018 and completed postdoctoral training in legal history at Princeton University in 2020. Dr. Omwat's research focuses on the effect of anti-inflationary economic policy and colorblind legal ideology on public hospitals. His research interests engage problems in political economy, social welfare policy, public health, curative medicine, and epidemic preparedness. In 2019, Dr. Omwat organized a national conference called Law, Difference, and Healthcare, Making Sense of Structural Racism in Medico-Legal History. He directs the inaugural Global Health and Health Inequality Mapping Lab in Africana Studies. He's a professor at the State University of New York, Stony Brook is currently completing a book manuscript tentatively titled Medical Scarcity, 
the political economy of healthcare rights in America. And he has a new article, which has been accepted for publication, titled Dismantling the Safety Net Hospital, the Construction of Underutilization and Scarce Public Health Care. And that will be appearing in the Journal of Urban History. George Omwat, thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today. Nice to see you, Scott. Thanks for having me. And uh, I just want to thank you again for uh, organizing well over uh, 350 talks uh, that will serve as an incredible uh, time capsule and archive for people going to the future. So I thank you for that work. It's kind of you to say so. I really appreciate that. And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. I'm based in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles, and I'm currently in Los Angeles. And um, in the two places, the pandemics are uh, roughly the same. Um, we have about 1,300 uh, average daily cases in New York City. Um, that's remained about the same over the past two weeks, whereas in Los Angeles, that number is about 1,000 uh, daily cases on average, um, with about a 25% decline. And in both places, um, vaccination rates are roughly similar. So I suspect that the relative density of New York City um, accounts for the, rel um, the, rel the relatively larger uh, case count. But so far, uh, relatively speaking, um, good, especially on the vaccination front, um, though in the aggregate, um, we are still seeing some worrying numbers nationally. It's kind of reached a point now where I talk with uh, guests, if they're based in Northeast or West Coast, you've got both of those hmm. covered. Um, the conversation, nobody wants to use the term endemic yet, but it's a different kind of pandemic than when I talk to guests who are in Florida or Texas. Mm -hmm. um, they're just, and it reminds me of the early days of the pandemic in which it really was, you said sort of two different pandemics, but it, at that time it was the Northeast and the West that was really in it and it was the South that hadn't yet experienced it. That bifurcation is jarring to me. I don't know if you feel the same. I do feel the same and I found it a bit surprising actually, though I think um, when epidemiologists study this going, you know, looking to the past, uh, the fact that, you know, um, some of the earliest cases were in um, major ports of entry for, for, for air travelers and flyers, I think accounts for that disparity and that difference. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to kind of see the regionalization of um, a global pandemic within a national frame, how um, very excessive numbers in one location don't necessarily translate elsewhere, which may lead people to hubristically assume that they're safe, that they're in a rural area, that um, COVID would not uh, catch them. But I think what we see with the Delta variant clearly um, is an exacerbation of the epidemic in just those places that maybe had assumed that um, they weren't in an urban area, they weren't in a city, um, they weren't in a heavily racialized area even. Um, and uh, populations that maybe assumed that they would have been safe were now unfortunately seeing um, the opposite, um, particularly you know, in the South and in the, the Midwest. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a, a personal memory, something that really sticks in their in their memory of, of this time. Would you mind sharing? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, the first memory that came to mind was just the sound of the sirens because I was in Brooklyn, New York at the peak of the pandemic in New York City um, before I decamped for Los Angeles, which then became the second epicenter in the US. Um, but uh, I just remember 
vividly hearing sirens all the time. Um, I lived off a major uh, avenue that led to one of the major hospitals in New York City, um, Kings County. And so it was just a constant drone of the klaxons and the sirens um, that um, the first two weeks I thought I would not get used to, but then eventually became sort of a sort of ambient noise, um, which, you know, sounds morbid, but um, it was the truth. But I do want to share another memory, which um, isn't directly related to the pandemic, but related to the racial uh, injustice protests of um, last year. Um, I participated in those and I was unfortunately um, caught in a kettle in um, the Bronx, New York, um, where um, uh, myself and a number of other protesters were arrested by uh, the NYPD under the pretext of our violating um, a uh, quarantine order for 8 p.m. Unfortunately, this happened uh, at 7.45 p.m. So uh, the police kettled us and refused to let us leave and then use that kettling and that holding of us against our will as pretext to arrest us. Um, myself and a number of other protesters sustained massive injuries. I myself have um, some permanent nerve damage in my hand from that. Um, but it was a really scary time because um, this was, again, during a pandemic. Many people had planned to just go back home after their protests, after exercising the First Amendment rights. And instead, the NYPD placed us in a precarious position um, where uh, many of them were unmasked. Many of the protesters had lost their masks in the, in the, in the tuffle, in, in the fight. Um, uh, and when we were in the jail conditions, many people didn't even have masks on. So it was a really um, traumatizing and um, concerning uh, episode and time that affected many, many people and really kind of showed a, 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 the underbelly of our carceral system during this time of pandemic and the lack of precaution and respect um, afforded to citizens um, and residents of the city um, at this time um, where, you know, not only did we have a global pandemic, but we also had um, an attempt to have a true reckoning with uh, racial injustice in this country. And unfortunately, the two um, issues collided in, in this one space. So that is really kind of the most vivid memory I have of this past 18 months, um, something I'm still processing and thinking about with uh, many comrades and um, just kind of makes me think deeply about what is it to have democracy in a pandemic? Um, what are the sort of limitations that have been placed on freedom of speech and expression during this time? Um, and some, what are some of the ways in which an attempt to reckon with racism um, during this time? Um, what are sort of the, some of the limitations that have been placed around that fight um, under the aegis of the, um, putting COVID first um, and putting the response to the pandemic first? Um, that experience for me showed me that they're not mutually exclusive. Um, in fact, they're mutually constitutive and they inform mm -hmm. one another. And I've been really thinking deeply about um, that experience and its impact on my scholarship, aside from the sort of personal impacts. First of all, thank you for sharing that. And, and also thank you for protesting. And I'm sorry that that was the outcome. And, but 
I, I was going to ask you, I didn't know about that. I was going to ask you about this topic. So uh, let's just segue directly to that because uh, I had a chance during that time to talk with um, Rashawn Ray, sociologist at the University of Maryland, uh, who's written a lot about um, policing and, and racial inequality in, in history of the United States. And um, he used the phrase, the, the, I don't know if he used twin, I think he used twin pandemics or dual pandemics, but he really wanted to use the language of pandemic to talk about um, structural violence in policing in America. And of course that conversation received, well, you could tell me, but I, it seemed to me it received a level of media scrutiny and public discussion that we hadn't seen in the United States, certainly in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. e even during other episodes uh, in which it was on the front page, you know, maybe the LA riots or something like that, you know, front page for a week. But this was a sustained, I felt like, sustained national conversation at many different scales. But um, all I hear about now are the trampling of the rights of people who are being made to wear a mask or who are being um, forced with taking a, a vaccine instead of losing their job. I feel like the national discourse mm -hmm. has shifted from that to this other sort of infringement, so-called infringement of, of rights. I don't want to flatten the debate. Uh, so I wonder how, I guess what I want to know from you is, is draw you out on this a little bit and see how much you think this discussion of the twin pandemics, and I like that framing, mm -hmm. how much that's still with us. And if it's not, what can we do to regain it? Do we need another round of activism combined with oral history? What do, what is, what do we need to get back to that moment? Because it was a, alarming moment. It was a terrifying moment. It also felt like a moment that was alive with possibility. And, mm -hmm. but that's my perspective and it's a, it's a narrow one. And I wonder if you can elaborate on yours. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated and, and tough question to answer because I think we're still living through it. Right. Um, these are, uh, both historical, but also present, um, issues. And, um, I'm really struck by kind of wizened activists and those from the 60s who kind of um, throw their hands up and lament and say, well, what's changed? Um, uh, we were fighting for many of the same issues and it seems that we're just repeating ourselves. And as a younger person, you know, I respect that perspective and I seek to learn more from that perspective, whether it's through oral history or just listening um, to people who have been here before in this very same situation. But I also wonder about what's different about the situation and what's different about the present moment, because inevitably there has to be a difference. And I don't believe in flattening um, history in that way of saying that it's just continuity, that there are no differences. I think, you know, this language of a twin pandemic reminds me of a piece by uh, Nicholas Freudenberg and, 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 and company um, on the sort of syndemic of um, tuberculosis, HIV, and homicides in New York City during the 1975 fiscal crisis. And I would actually encourage people to kind of look at that um, as an example of um, scholarship that really tries to take uh, events that are seemingly um, unrelated and placing them into one frame in which we think about how logics of carcerality, logics of imprisonment, logics of policing can actually lead us into um, a way in which different movements can connect their struggles in a way that was formally siloed. Um, I think when you think about the 1975 fiscal crisis, for example, I think immediately one of the parallels um, is in um, 
the fiscal crisis, so the panic around um, whether there would be a recession, whether there would be an economic calamity. Um, in the case of the 75 crisis, it was mostly about municipal bonds and, and finance. But in 2000, 2020, it was a, a pathogen that caused this, this worry. And I'm really struck by that because um, speaking to you know many fr friends, friends who are cancer survivors, friends who are dealing with autoimmune disorders, one of the most common things I hear is, um, all my life I've been wearing masks or worrying about transmission or worrying about contagion. And only now um, has this thing that has been seen as a disability and seen as something particular to me been um, amplified and blown up on a societal level where now everyone is worried about um, uh, uh, contagion and how to protect themselves. Um, and so I think we have a lot to learn from disability studies, disability scholars, disability activists, um, those dealing with um, uh, communities that are dealing with illness and how um, you know strategies that they've taken to take care of their health have always been an issue for them. And this is not a sort of unique uh, crisis moment for them. Um, and so I, I, so on one hand, I'm, I'm struck by that parallelism between sort of fiscal crises of the 70s and the 2000s, even though they have different um, cause, causes. But at the same time, in light of what I'm hearing from um, you know, marginalized populations, uh, those who um, have always had um, to worry about their health without societal support, I'm thinking a lot about how uh, the syndemic of 1975 with HIV, tuberculosis, and homicides was particularized, right? It wasn't made and seen as a societal problem per se, um, but seen as a problem for Black people, for uh, immigrants, for poor people. And so I'm struck by how the, the, the language of crisis um, and this is something that I've really learned a lot from my colleague, Maria John, who's a historian of the Indian um, uh, Health uh, Service, um, who basically argues that the language of crisis really obscures some of the ways in which these are long-standing issues that have always been undercurrent and always been intersecting with one another, mm -hmm. and how COVID exceptionalism, um, for lack of a better term, I suppose, um, really obscures our ability to sort of link and, and, and find connections between something like a pathogen or a virus and the threats inherent to, for example, um, a carceral system where we know um, some of the biggest sites of transmission have been jails and prisons. Um, and um, in the early uh, months of the vaccine rollout, um, there were attempts to get these populations vaccinated, but for political reasons, um, they were not prioritized. So I'm really puzzling. I would love to talk and work with you to think about this um, between, you know, what benefit to social justice and racial justice does a framing of exceptionalism give us versus mm. framing of continuity? And I don't know if, and you've had so many conversations with other people, so I'm sure you have some answers to this question, but I suspect that the framing around exceptionalism is also what has allowed um, things like the Black Lives Matter movement to peter out in mainstream discourse. Because again, mm. emphasis on crisis moments, on spectacle, and less of an emphasis on structure and continuities. I think you're exactly right on that that point. But it's a it's an old 
it's an old problem and a real bind for disaster scholars, disaster researchers, because the disaster event itself, of course, is uh, to borrow language of uh, political scientist Tom Birkeland, it's a focusing event. It grabs policymakers by the lapels and says, look over here, and, and can keep them focused maybe even through a whole session of Congress. That's hard to do these days. Um, so there's that, and it focuses media attention. And so you have to make the event exceptional. It has to be newsworthy. And so that can gather resources, but, but of course, that... Um, that moment, and of course, it's there's no formula to it, but the moment will pass from some sort of event to some sort of slow disaster or continuity. And then it will be a much smaller group of people, usually with much less political power, who will be making the case um, that this is a, a continuity that was in existence before and will pass through after. And I feel like that's a lot of the, the your just description here, this endemic, I feel like that's a lot of the work that we're seeing. Um, maybe it was brought to light, uh, in the early days of the COVID pandemic, particularly the startling health inequalities in the United States for people in congregate care facilities, elder care facilities, carceral settings um, in low income and minority neighborhoods. So we saw that and there was a moment there in which that continuity was real and structure was being discussed. I mean, there's a huge infrastructure bill in front of Congress right now. How does that look to you in terms of not letting the moment pass in terms of not letting it be exceptional. I mean, that's the kind of the dance we're doing exactly. here. What do you feel about that? I mean, is there, d does that seem to, just to take one piece of legislation that's much in the news these days, is that getting at some of the structural issues that would make the next pandemic less exceptional in the way that we're describing it, do you think? I suspect uh, just based on how large the bill is and how many areas of life it covers from child care to uh, paid family leave that it would make a material difference right um, we know that these are still long-standing issues for um, americans um, particularly child care which is so ex expensive in this country relative to other countries and has been a, such a hamper on um, allowing uh, working parents to continue to do their work and ensure that their children are well taken care of and educated um, but the question is also interesting to me as another parallel to the 70s, because um, I think what you see in the discussion around the reconciliation uh, bill around the, the $3.5 trillion uh, budget um, act, which would which would really be a sort of second great society, uh, sort of, sort of a, a infusion of governmental um, effort into our communities, is a similar discussion about um, a sort of revanchist discussion, a, a worry that inflation um, will uh, outdo any sort of benefit of increased fiscal uh, stimulus, and this is a this is a um, discourse that was very dominant in the '70s. It was actual um, inflation in the '70s, um, but under the guise of fighting inflation, many policymakers um, sought to uh, cut. Um, funding from the government and subsidies from the government under the logic that, for example, something like Medicare and Medicaid, which was passed in 1965 um, and, you know, allowed for uh, a sort of prospective payment initially uh, to, to, to providers, that these government programs were drivers of inflation, particularly medical and, and healthcare inflation. And so I'm really struck um, by the fact that um, initially, you know, in the 70s, uh, that big worry was largely on the side of the Republican Party. But 
today, um, it seems like the stickler has been um, centrist Democrats or moderate Democrats, uh, 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 senators like uh, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, um, who have cited very similar rhetoric um, against uh, passing a substantial and sizable infrastructure bill. And so I think we were, we're already seeing the consequences of this, right? I think this is why it's so important to not just look at what um, legislation has passed, but to look very closely at um, uh, the dance of legislation, the, the legislative drafting process, because all of a sudden we've gone from a place where Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House um, and have sort of big plans to take this crisis moment, but the sort of uh, significance of it and the sort of urgency of it has significantly d diminished um, to a point where now we're looking at a bill that could be um, as small as $1.5 trillion and may cut out a lot of the essential supports um, that people need um, to deal with the next uh, crisis, the next pandemic. So I, I do find this very kind of strange. I see, I find myself thinking opposite now um, about the importance of crises here, um, because uh, when we look at the history of incrementalism in the United States, so this notion that American liberalism tends to favor piecemeal change over any sort of radical or fundamental change, mm -hmm. um, you can kind of see how um, the path dependency um, of the system and the status quo and the sort of weight that one or two senators can have on um, an expansive package, we really see how um, that comes to bear fruit over and over again. So if anything, if there's a pattern um, to mm -hmm. shrinkage, it's not quite on the social movement side. The social movement side has been quite consistent. Um, pattern is um, really, um, I think you can see um, in the legislative side, in in the in the role of money in politics, in the role of um, pharmaceutical donors and um, other special interests in um, fighting back against any sort of attempt to decommodify um, social provision and to ensure some baseline of rights for something like, for example, childcare in this country. Um, it's not an encouraging pattern for yeah. sure. I think it's. It's worth, I think, activists and 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 scholars being aware of of, of this pattern because um, I think it would lead to a different sort of strategy legislatively and politically if you're not simply relying on making the most of a crisis and thinking more in terms of um, a sort of strategic plan in which um, you're doing more sort of more classic form of politics. You know what what do people want? Uh, what can you exchange to build a bill that will be substantive and actually impact people's lives versus um, accepting um, even before you negotiate? And this is, again, a problem, I think, of the Democratic Party in the past 20 years or so, before you negotiate, accepting the lowest common denominator. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with my guest, George Omwat, and um, 
uh, I, one of the things I enjoy talking with you is is I can see that as we're talking about con uh, present, you know, infrastructure bill, your mind is moving into the 1970s, and you have that. Well, I mean, talking to historians, of course, is what I love to do, but um, and all disaster researchers, but particularly, you know, to see you tracking those changes across that stretch of time is really valuable. And I and with that in mind, I just want to make sure people are aware that. Um, and we mentioned your um, book project, but also the tremendous article that um, um, did make it into, I think, pretty wide discussion you published in the Washington Post last year in their Made by History um, column titled The Racist History That Explains Why Some Communities Don't Have Enough ICU Beds. Even the title tell us tells is like a time capsule coming to me from this time period in which Americans said, wait a minute, people are... are in hallways of hospitals, I don't understand some that people are in people are in parking decks of of hospitals. What's happening here? This sort of um, horror movie moment in which Americans are shown the reality of disinvestment in the health system. And I just want to give a brief quote from that piece towards the beginning. You say the lack of ICU beds in low income communities is not only part of a larger unsettling pattern; it is the result of decades of federal and state policies especially spending cuts that date back to the post-World War II period and that have limited hospital care access in the United States. Um, I'm going to put up a link to that piece. Everyone should read it and discuss it. And uh, since I have you here, maybe you can um, tell me a little bit about how you came to write that. And maybe let's sketch out that history a little bit, particularly that earlier period, um, just before hospitals were desegregated. And then let's talk about some of those details. Yeah, thanks for that question. And thanks for observing uh, my cognitive uh, process here uh, when I kind of think about uh, the parallels between and the differences between the 70s and today. And that was precisely the sort of motivation for the piece, actually. Um, so going back to that first memory, you know, I'm hearing these klaxons, I'm hearing these sirens, I'm, I'm just feeling the weight, just like everyone else was at the time in, in New York City, especially, um, of the pandemic. And I'm thinking, you know, every siren I hear, what kind of bed is available for that person in that ambulance? And um, I was thinking about my research and thinking about how, in a sense, my thesis was quite unpopular in, in, in major policy circles. You know, before the pandemic, I got a lot of pushback against this notion that hospitals should have, at minimum, you know, a, a sort of a sufficient amount of bed capacity to handle uh, occasional spikes um, in in bed uh, bed census uh, bed censuses and patients uh, admit, admittance to to the hospital, and I argued this because even before COVID nineteen, we witnessed particularly bad, bad flu seasons leading toward uh, patients being placed on gurneys, for example. Um, outside of the United States, we've witnessed uh, novel pathogens um, or Ebola crises that ha that required um, intense uh, infusions of uh, of of, of uh, temporary uh, triage units and and medical facilities. And so, I was really trying to give context um, for again. Um, uh, something that shouldn't just be seen as epiphenomenal, as crisis, as once in a lifetime event, but really try to um, uh, encircle it with context. So when you think about the history of, of hospitals in the United States, um, in 1970, the United States had about 
7,000 hospitals with about 1.62 million beds. And by the millennium, uh, by the new millennium, that total reduced to about 5,800 hospitals with about only 984,000 beds. Now, the reason for this shift was largely um, economic and also largely uh, sociological in a sense, um, because during the 70s, as you see the introduction of pharmaceuticals and outpatient care and the sort of efficacy of those modalities increase, you see a decrease in people seeking inpatient care in hospitals. So typically, uh, the patient census was seen as uh, being normally at 75%. That would be like a good uh, utilization of the hospital. But over the 70s, that uh, census, that inpatient census, started to decline towards 60% in many parts of the country. And so policymakers began to puzzle um, over why that was. Um, some of the aforementioned reasons, pharmaceuticals, outpatient care, in, uh, uh, improved surgical and depth diagnostic services. Um, one day sur surgeries, for example, became much more possible um, um, going into the 80s. And so policymakers began to argue, well, we don't need all these hospital beds. They're underutilized. And so over the 70s, particularly with inflation as um, motivation, in places like New York City, which had the largest um, and still has the largest public hospital system in the nation, you begin to see a number of uh, uh, local governors, uh, governors and mayors begin to look at um, closing underutilized facilities and consolidating uh, the, their their beds into uh, the remaining facilities. You begin to see as well um, any sort of new construction um, where uh, specialty care and the latest diagnostic and high-tech technology could be placed. A lot of these uh, hospitals were being built in suburbs and, and wealthier areas and under the guise of not, uh, you know, a sort of classist justification, but under the guise that with um, a sort of deindustrialization and movement of people from inner cities to the suburbs, uh, majority populations would need um, that care there. And so uh, any remaining hospitals could just provide um, emergency and trauma care, essentially, and outpatient care. So you see a complete um, retraction of outpatient care, uh, of uh, a specialty care, rather, from you know, city hospitals. And this is also a parallel process that occurs in rural hospitals. And so the op-ed was really an attempt to both give, in the first half, um, a really quick um, history of the sort of technocratic shift and obsession around utilization ratios and the numbers that were used to kind of um, justify closing hospitals in majority black and brown neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods, but also to talk about some of the legal uh, jurisprudence and, and justification that allowed for this to happen. Um, before a lot of these tools of utilization were used actually um, by the Department of Health, Education and Welfare in the 60s after the passage of Medicare and Medicaid to desegregate hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was used to look at the ratio of black and white patients, whether they were in the same uh, room, on the same floors. And these were very powerful uh, tools in concert with local activists um, for seeing into hospitals. But by the 70s, and with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VI, which bars discrimination um, uh, in public uh, facilities or facilities that receive public money, the sort of salience of um, 
racism as just a sort of statistical demonstration of exclusion or inequality no longer bore fruit. In, uh, instead, jurists began to ask about intention. So before mm -hmm. the 60s, all you, could, all you had to do was show any sort of disproportionate effect in terms of the demographics of a hospital, in terms of the statistics of the hospital. But with, um, uh, de with de jure desegregation, with de jure integration of hospitals, the sort of salience of racism marker of inequality and sort of impact of a hospital closure, for example, that might be used by um, you know, uh, maybe a population of 60% black people, um, that no longer had traction in courts as discrimination. In fact, it was uh, seen as largely solved. Um, integration, desegregation had largely solved the problem of racism for many jurists. And so instead, there was an emphasis on plaintiffs proving discriminatory intent. And mm -hmm. the problem with that, though, was that there are multiple stakeholders at play, multiple people who are making decisions around closure, um, very few people after um, 68 are going to are going to write into a memorandum like they did before that moment uh, racist things. So right. plaintiffs had a really tough time of proving that the closure of a hospital that served a majority black or brown population was discrimination because now those defendants could say, well, we know we closed this proximate hospital, but this population just has to get on a public bus and uh, it's just an extra 20 minutes of a commute and they can get the specialty care in the suburb or they can get specialty care in, a, in, a, in, a, in another facility like an academic medical center and not a public hospital. And so that, that was kind of the, the, the where I wanted to leave readers with the end of that is that this became a bipartisan consensus, cutting beds not only on the political side, but then became, it also transferred and found its way into law. And I think um, one last bit that I think people should really recognize is, and where I start the piece, is the fact that the very first federal law, the Hilburton Modernization um, and Construction Act of 1946, um, was one of the first statutes to take the Plessy v. Ferguson separate but equal um, uh, ruling and put it into law. So it was the first, this law basically funded the construction of hospitals throughout the United States and had a, a grant making mechanism that rotated funding from urban to rural to suburban. And so it was actually a, mas a massive motor in increasing health equality and access to hospital care. But the sticking point was that Southern Democrats at the time insisted on maintaining segregated facilities. And so from the very beginning of the federal government's introduction of uh, fiscal support for hospitals in, in, in the, this post-New Deal, post-war moment was a racist statute that said that separate but equal um, facilities were, acceptable, were accepted and could receive funding. And it wasn't until 1963 with a case in the Fourth Circuit, um, Fourth uh, District Court, uh, Fourth Circuit um, Court, um, this case called Sim Simpkins v. Moses H. Cone Memorial Hospital, that the, that, that court found um, uh, state action in a private facility that had received uh, uh, pub public funding and mm -hmm. thus mandated that that hospital desegregate. So it wasn't actually the federal government or even Congress with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that got hospitals de to desegregate. 
it was a very particular district court um, mm -hmm. that was able to identify with the help of um, an NAACP chapter president who happened to be a dentist, who happened to have admitting wow. privileges to this hospital, um, this issue of um, inequality and segregation and care. And only after that, the, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64 follow and um, the Department of Health, Education and Welfare follow through with actually desegregating facilities. And so that brings you up to the 70s where that long history of um, jurisprudence, um, NAACP legal defense fund fights in areas like uh, employment, education, and later healthcare, that that whole history is in a sense forgotten legally. Mm -hmm. And the standard shifts towards intent. And you, you would almost think it would be opposite that in an era where there's such explicit racism, that would be the place to apply that standard. But in fact, it's a place in which racism becomes subterranean and invisibilized that all of a sudden intent mattered to the courts. I just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm discussing uh, with George Omwat today his uh, op-ed that appeared in the Washington Post, the recent, uh, the excuse me, the racist history that explains why some communities don't have enough ICU beds. George, thank you for going through that in, in such detail and um, this is what's in the book. Is that right? That's this right. Is, we need this book. <laughs> I feel like I've got, we got to end this call right now. So you just go back and you finish the, we got to, this, we need this work. I mean, this is so important. And, and I have so many questions, but let me, the, there's one I want to sort of get back, kind of a historian's question, I guess, but were there people at the time that this move was being made in the seventies to rationalize care and to, to bring this sort of anti-inflationary mindset and we're sort of thinking about New York, kind of as we were talking about earlier, New York in the 70s, it's a, um, you know, Lindsay is mayor, he has aspirations of, of becoming president. You know, there's, um, and as you pointed to, it seems also there's some sort of bipartisan consensus seems to be emerging coming out of the 60s about how to, how to implement a, a post-racist society. And, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for that. I think, um, but at the same time, I wonder whether people at that moment who are raising the alarm and saying this move is going to have unintended consequences, or were they able to even sketch out what those consequences might be? Because reducing beds is reducing beds. I mean, you might be doing it for reasons that you could point to and say this is efficiencies, and people live in the suburbs, and of course, it's, but I mean, I can I can almost hear the sounds of the meeting room in my head, but at the same time, there must have been people who were who were raising some sort of alarm or, or concern. I wanna hear from them. Are, are they in the record? Yeah, they are in the record. Um, at the Schomburg uh, Library, uh, the Schomburg Center for um, Research in Black Culture, which is uh, housed in the New York Public Library's branch on 135th Street and um, Lenox Avenue across from Harlem Hospital. Um, are records um, from many community members at the time who um, oppose um, Edward Koch's proposed closure of Sidenham Hospital, which was um, the oldest hospital in the Health and Hospitals Corporation system, the New York City Municipal Hospital System, um, and uh, was uh, highly decrepit, um, had a lot of um, plumbing issues, flooding, um, was very inaccessible for uh, people with disabilities, um, people who couldn't walk, um, but which had a storied history. It was one of the first hospitals to admit 
and Afro-American surgeon staff, Dr. Louis T. Wright. Um, it had deep community ties where multiple generations of uh, families had their children and, and subsequently brought um, their elderly uh, parents to get receive care where the doctors knew the community deeply. And um, a number of groups in Harlem um, at the time that Koch proposed this closure in 1978-79 um, uh, mobilized to fight the, the, the end of the closure. You had a group called the Concerned Citizens of Harlem Hospital, um, which was linked to the Community Accountability Board, which itself was a product of the Johnson era's attempts to enact maximum feasible participation and have more democratic input in um, the operation of hospitals. Um, oppose this fight through protests where they mass in front of the Schomburg in front of the Harlem Hospital to call out Ed, Edward Koch um, at a mm -hmm. fundraiser where they marched down to 125th Street um, to the Adam Clayton Powell um, State Building to to uh, to make it known to every representative that they that they not approve of this closure plan. Um, you had a group called 100 Black Men um, who. Uh, narrowed their focus actually to the impact of the closure on job opportunities and paraprofessional opportunities for black and brown Harlemites and, and, and poor Harlemites in, in, in the city. Um, and so a number of different groups were really mobilizing on the ground um, to fight the sort of seemingly neutral determination that Sydenham with uh, the fewest beds in Harlem in, in the Harlem area deserved to be closed because there was Harlem Hospital, there was Metropolitan Hospital, and then there was you know private facilities like St. Luke's and Columbia Presbyterian who could um, automatically absorb any displaced patients. And you know one of the things that I love about COVID calls in your series, Scott, is the focus on not just the numbers on human life, and um, this is where when I look at the, the, the collision between how um, statistics were both used to um, say that um, hospital closure is not an issue, but also to um, create sort of speculation that patients could just sort themselves into remaining hospitals, where, you know, the sort of hubristic assumption behind that, or maybe the callous assumption behind that, is that it assumes that patients are like, um, just consumers, right? That they can just plug themselves in anywhere. They don't need to know their physicians. They don't need to have a context or a history with them. That this has no impact or on on the quality of care and levels of trust between patient and physician. And what you see at this moment with the closure side in home is a ripping of the social fabric, as a ripping of the sort of social ecology of care. Um, and this is where I'm deeply um, influenced by the work of um, so social ecologists and epidemiologists like Roderick Wallace and, 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 and Mindy Fullylove and, and other people who look at the fact that we can't understand the impacts of the closure of a mental health facility or a drug treatment center or hospital without thinking about the ways in which existing communities look at these institutions as nodes, reliable nodes in life to go to for their care. And so when you close that hospital, when you disperse the attendants and the residents who have developed relationships with local community members, it will take months to a year plus for that patient to reestablish a primary care physician and be back into care. And so I think this is something that 
a lot of the policymakers and bipartisan sort of fight to fight inflation and, and, and seeing fiscally responsible missed was that you can replace something like a hospital with something new. But if you don't have the same people involved drawing in patients and ma maintaining a continuity of care for them, you're actually worsening health outcomes because um, African-Americans, Black people in particular, in particular due to our treatment in this country historically, um, are, are mistrustful of um, academic of the main of the sort of mainstream medical establishment and um, it's hard work to develop patient physician relationships that are built on bonds of trust and history and these are considerations that were never um, entered into or considered in the utilization reviews um, of the 70s and the 80s instead it was mainly just a focus on the numbers of how many patients are in here on a daily basis and what other hospitals are around and how can we shrink the numbers of staff assigned per hospital and kind of uh, shrink the number of diagnostic techn technologies that are dis dispersed to make it more efficient. But what was missing in that search for efficiency and that search for cost savings was precisely this emphasis mm -hmm. on history, on sociology, on ecology. And this is something that I think we that we're still just scratching the surface of because a lot of the archival documents are focused on um, numbers, on economic analysis. But when you go to some place like the Schomburg and when you're looking at constituent letters that are sent to the city council of people complaining about the risk of closing this hospital and what it would mean for their family, you get a completely different uh, sort of narrative view that sure may be considered more anecdotal and less empirical, but is by, by no by, by no means less impactful and informative for our present day today about how we can deal with um, the impact of infrastructure on the, the lives of families and individuals. So George, you're into some really interesting territory here, and I, and um, you know. I used to live in Philadelphia and I would walk a lot and I taught a course in the history of Philadelphia and walk through the city and it always struck me, you would come across a site um, and, and there would be a, a plaque or something would tell you this was, this was a particular hospital. Mm. And the scale, of course, they were neighborhood scale. So we're talking, you know, early 20th century, you know, to mid-century hospitals um, in African-American and in minority uh, and in ethnic neighborhoods. And, and I'm sure for every major city in America, you could do that, that walking tour of the neighborhood hospital. And, and as you point out, I mean, some of these places, by the time they were torn down, I'm sure they had, they had problems with the, their structures were probably, you know, they were falling apart. I'm sure there were all kinds of problems with, with these, with the buildings themselves and the physical plant. I'm sure they needed upkeep, you know, yes. But if we just talk about it in terms of beds um, or square footage, we will lose this affective history of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I think, and bring it back to your earlier discussion, that's what's been missing, I think, in the way that Democrats are talking about infrastructure. When you talk, and I'm borrowing a phrase you used in some of our correspondence, we talk about infrastructure as a cold infrastructure. We're going to build this, we're going to put this amount of miles of roads, or this sort of numbers that people can't really comprehend, but they seem impressive. To me, that's just like talking about megatons of nuclear weapons. It yeah. just moves us into that space of, of, of the, the sublime 
which is impressive, but also terrifying. I don't like it. I like the kind of discussion you're encouraging us to have where we talk about what does a hospital mean to a community? Yeah. Because I think tearing down a hospital in a community is is a deeply destructive act and, and building a hospital is an act of love. And, mm-hmm. and I think we should talk about it in that way. And I don't mean to be naive, but I think those are the kinds of, of and I think your history here that you're talking about helps us recover that mode of, of discussion and to bring it back to COVID what's been happening in hospitals is going to take us a long time to figure out and to sort out and to document what's happened in these places, incredible trauma and loss, but we need that too, because those are turning points in a family's life, in a community's life. It's not always about birth. Sometimes it's about death, but that also leaves a space of memory in a community and to have it just sort of ripped up like you're describing for efficiency's sake i just think it um it's done uh it's done a lot of damage in things that haven't been counted and i think that's what you're encouraging us to do absolutely and i i think you know i think about um where you were in philadelphia i mean during the pandemic hennepin hospital was uh, a major uh, safety net hospital in, in central Philly that was closed and which um, investment uh, bankers didn't want wanted to sell back in order to reopen during the COVID crisis when um, local um, Philadelphians uh, asked for more bed capacity. And in fact, you see a, an instance where an existing facility, a, a facility that was just fine, um, was just sold um, for venture capital, but existed and could have been mobilized couldn't be mobilized because it was property, um, pri- privatized property um, that was uh, seen as needing to be sold first to someone to operate it instead of seen seen as a social good um, to be mobilized in in the moment. And then what you're talking about also reminds me of something um, like Charity Hospital. Um, there's a film called Big Charity, which really helps um, everyone get into the sort of affective life of um, uh, institution that was closed. And, and you know, Charity Hospitals one, was the first sort of safety net hospital in the United States, founded in the colonial, colonial era, and um, had provided free uh, healthcare to New Orleans for centuries, more than 200 years. And it took one natural disaster, and this is something I'll get into more um, for an upcoming talk at Brown University, on uh, medical scarcity through political and natural disaster. But um, it took one disaster, the Katrina disaster, um, to allow the forces of privatization um, and investment to kind of move in and close down the stored institution under the aegis that it had been ruined by the hurricane. When in fact, only the lower floors of Charity Hospital were damaged and very quickly local workers and residents had cleaned that up. The upper floors, upper wards were fine. Power was still running, but still the, 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 the disaster Katrina was used as a pretext to close this institution, which seemed almost impenetrable and uh, indestructible, permanent. And the building itself is quite large. It was a product um, of, um, the, of New Deal construction. And Today, it's, it remains New Orleans, but it is a, remains sort of figment of New Orleanians' memories rather than 
a continuing um, site of care for for local for local people. So I suspect in ten to twenty years, as generations pass through and, and the city changes, people may look at that city, look at that building, and may not even recognize it's a hospital or even recognize its significance as charity hospital. And this is where I think history is so powerful in not just telling the story of victors and those who are successors, but talking about the victims and those who have lost. Because if we don't tell these stories and recreate the sort of milieu of significance for people, then it's so easy to kind of just look at a building as cold infrastructure, as um, absent of any sort of affective tie, absent of any sort of social importance in the local ecology of people. And so I really do um, encourage um, watchers and listeners to check out this film, if you can, Big Charity. It's really, really powerful. Any educator, if you're thinking about a film that illustrates some of these issues and gets outside of the dry technocratic language of a patient census and more into the life of the actual patients, this is the film to teach and to show because it not only gives a historical perspective, but the sort of local interviews illustrate the sort of ways in which we take for granted um, institutions that were hard fought for and had really important missions of providing um, care to people. And it expands our lens and our ability to kind of understand what different forms of infrastructure exists to take care of people in a disaster, to take care of people when they can't pay for the incidents and the accidents of life. And in, and now we're, we're dealing with a situation where we have academic medical centers, we have a plethora of urgent care centers, and there are fewer and fewer charity care or municipal or public hospital sites for people to get access to healthcare. And instead they have to think about whether they're employed by someone who has a health plan for them or whether they qualify for the, um, a, a sort of Medicaid plan under Obamacare. Um, and even under these new models of, uh, for example, the ACA, even under that model, um, the very model of the ACA has uh, uh, incentivizes physicians to spend less time with patients. To, to spend less time developing these close relationships um, under the guise of providing more care to more people. But I don't think we've sufficiently accounted for the costs of this continual obsession with not only economizing resources, but economizing time and displacing the costs of concentrated hospitals and hospital closures onto patients who now have to take more time out of their day and spend more money trying to get to a facility that's farther away or the rare facility that will accept their Medicaid. Um, and so these are these complicated um, gaps in the system that I think we really need to kind of root ourselves in um, and not think about as um, a sort of teleology of a sort of inevitable progress toward um, the world that we live in today, which is a much more privatized world um, where the costs come out of the patient's pocket immediately, and sometimes that will lead to bankruptcy. Um, there was another world before, and there are other worlds outside of the United States too. So I think it's really important for us to not only remember stories like Charity, to remember stories like Hannafin in Philadelphia, to remember stories like Sidenham in New York, but to recreate, in a sense, 
the importance of these institutions for local people and the archives are there. We're up on time. I, I want to, I don't want to overstay my welcome with your time, George, but as we, as we go out, there's one, I just wanted to ask you just real quickly, um, what's the global health and health inequality mapping lab? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, yes, the global health and health inequality mapping lab is, um, an inaugural lab that I've started at Stony Brook University in the Department of Africana Studies um, in concert with Institute for Advanced Computational Sciences and the Department of Biomedical Informatics. And the goal of the lab um, is really inspired by um, efforts uh, begun by uh, Johns Hopkins University with the Coronavirus Resource Center, the dashboard that has been so instrumental and a model for uh, many other institutions and, and even newspapers like the New York Times. Um, and it was motivated by almost a similar um, impetus from what we were just discussing, which was, it was great to have all of these statistics on incidents, mortality, case rates, and to kind of see a global view. But in the sort of meta of that, the particularities of people's lives was lost. And so um, the goal of the Global Health and Health Inequality Mapping Lab is to take those same technologies, technologies that are rooted in platforms like ArcGIS, ArcMapGIS, um, and supplement them with more information about the social ecology of people's lives. And so our first project um, entitled Mapping um, the Social Experience of COVID-19 Suffolk County, New York, really aims to take these very similar um, data dashboard based uh, data mapping data visualization based uh, tools and use them as a way to get people to not only see the meta of epidemiology but to see the micro of people's lives and experiences and we've begun with um, augmenting arcmap gis um, with a, a proprietary tool that was developed by uh, jonas almite almeida in biomedical uh, informatics. Um, he's no longer at Stony Brook University, but he developed this tool, um, which is uh, classified as a qualitative pathology um, imaging tool, um, which was uh, originally used to look at uh, cancer pathologies. Um, and we are repurposing it um, for this purpose of looking at social ecology. So we're going from this very, very narrow sort of uh, application of the tool for, um, diagnost for diagnostic purposes um, and moving it into a space where um, people can not only just see um, the dicta of uh, epidemiology and, and case rates, but to compare that with um, oral history, with images and video of people's experiences on the ground, with survey response data. Um, and so, and we're also uh, in, uh, augmenting it with uh, more sonic features, sound based features, because mm. um, we realize that. There is one, um, an accessibility issue with many of the sort of uh, plain data mapping or visualization platforms where you need to be able to see to understand the significance of the data. And so we're trying to um, incorporate um, new things like pitch um, and tone and, and different sounds to allow people to think about um, the amplification, for example, of um, cases in uh, a, a hamlet that has a low rate of COVID versus a hamlet like Brentwood, which has a, a large Latinx population, which was actually one of the most heavily hit 
um, during the pandemic in terms of COVID-19 uh, transmission and trying to give just different ways in which people can kind of interact with the data um, in which they can kind of understand the significance of the course of the pandemic. And the larger um, goal for the project is as we collect the survey data, as we input it into the map so that when people click on a particular area, they're able to get anecdotal data um, from oral history or photo photography or videos that people can both submit their own information through ArcMap GIS applications. Um, so uh, we can go out in the field and, and ask people about their experiences, but then they also can over time send us back their experiences and their information. And that, you know, over the course of this pandemic, which is far from over, um, once it is resolved, we can then preserve this data map as a historical document in and of itself um, that people can use um, as a sort of novel database, a sort of mapped out database, where instead of entering a Boolean search and kind of searching from speculation, one can literally see the social ecology of the yeah, pandemic yeah, yeah. and drill in and get this data over time. So that's the big ambition for this first project. That is so exciting. I'm going to have to have a, a whole a COVID calls and bring you back with some of the team and actually talk. Yeah, in, in, um, yeah. it's, it's amazing because it's a whole separate discussion, but I'm hoping you know colleagues like Robert Soden and Jackie Wernemont, Jer Thorpe, Yanni Lukisis, people who've also been, I've had on COVID calls and we've talked about this problem of big numbers a lot. You're, mm -hmm. you're doing it. You're, this, this is the kind of projects um, that we're going to need to try to make sense of the pandemic and have this history um, this combination, even as you were describing it, the different expertises that are coming, um, and a shout out to um, Stony Brook for you know uh, supporting this. I'm sure you had to raise funds too, but I mean, this is what when we talk about you know interdisciplinarity, this is what it really looks like, as far as yes. I'm concerned. So good luck with it. Um, we're up on time. I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live 6 p.m. Eastern time. Next week is the week that we roll out the COVID calls archive and um, make it open for researchers. So it'll be an exciting week. Please um, tune in next week every day. We're going to have um, exciting guests and discussion also with the team who've been helping to make this real. So more about that coming up. Uh, George, this is a conversation I was looking forward to and it has exceeded my expectations. Thank you so much for teaching me today and, and our listeners. And I hope we'll stay in, in touch and please um, keep healthy and keep active. You too, Scott. Thanks for hosting this forum, and I'm looking forward to the 400th COVID call. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.